Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Jesus is the one whom the whole world seems to be going after. Jesus' miracles are so fantastic and his claims so audacious that everyone in Judea and Galilee, both rich and poor, both religious and irreligious, are asking this one question. Who is this man Jesus? Who is this man Jesus that's making the blind see and the lame walk? Who is this man Jesus that teaches with greater authority than even the scribes of the Pharisees, the most religious of the religious. And so today we are gonna be addressing this question and asking this question, who is Jesus? If you would please open up to Mark chapter three, we will be looking at verses 20 through 35. Today is page 837 in the Red Bible, if you are in the Red Bible. If you remember, just prior to this passage, as Jesus' fame grows, he goes up on a mountainside and he chooses 12 of his disciples to become his apostles, which means sent ones. And he uh, gives them authority to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to drive out demons, which will be important with today's passage. And so Jesus and his apostles come down to the mountain and they come to his home, which we said was in Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we pick up today's story. So Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. This is God's word. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us more of you, more of who you are, and more of what that has to do with who we are and with how we live our life. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I enjoy about Sundays that I'm not preaching is that I get to sit next to my wife and hold a Bible and receive from God's word. And I remember early on in our church planting experience, there was a Sunday, and I can't remember if it was uh, my ordination or there's some reason I wasn't preaching. And we had the fellowship time, which uh, if you've been here for a while, you might forget it's kind of weird for new people. But we had the fellowship time and we're visiting with folks. And and I come back to my seat and I sit down next to my wife and I put my hand on her thigh and I'm ready to hear the word of God. And, and, And my wife turns to me and says, Dan, I think Trisha's in the bathroom. And so I look next to me and it is not my wife sitting next to me. Uh, and matter of fact, it's my wife's mom sitting next to me. And so I have my hand on her thigh uh, and I'm extremely embarrassed by this, right? Um, sometimes people's identities matter a lot, right? Uh, sometimes who someone is matters a lot to our lives. Sometimes it doesn't matter that much, like if you call a stranger by the wrong name, no big deal. But sometimes identity matters a lot. Today we are faced with, with this question of identity. Who is Jesus, okay, that's the primary question we're gonna answer today. But there's a second question that comes with it that's also so extremely important. And the second question is this, why does it even matter? Why does it matter to you or to me? I mean, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Why does it matter at all who Jesus is for you today? And so those are the two questions we wanna look at. And we're gonna kind of look at it from three different vantage points, I guess, maybe a little bit. Um, the first is this, who did people say Jesus is? The people that lived in Jesus's day, who did they say Jesus was at that time? And and first we wanna look at what about Jesus's family? What What did Jesus's family say about who Jesus is? And what we find out as we read through this passage is that they actually say Jesus is a lunatic. All right, look at verse 20 with me. It says, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even Eat, that's how popular Jesus was. Wherever he went, just crowds came upon him. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. We'll pick this up again later in this passage in verse 32, but what we find out is the family that comes to seize Jesus is his mother Mary, as well as his brothers, his younger brothers. By this time, his father Joseph had passed away. Most likely, that's what scholars believe. And so when Jesus and his mother and brothers hear about, uh, when Jesus' mother and brother hear about what's going on in the world and how all these people are chasing after him, uh, they come to the conclusion that Jesus has had a mental breakdown. That, that, that Jesus has all this pressure of becoming the, the man of the household since Joseph passed away, and it's finally gotten to him. And as he's going around teaching and saying all these things, people are coming after him. And Jesus is starting to believe the things that all the people are saying about him. 
You know, this is such a great reminder that, that, that Jesus was so extremely human to his family. Um, he's as human as the person sitting next to you is human. He was, he was so human. He skinned his knees. His, his voice cracked when he hit puberty. He had acne. He smelled. He was so extremely human. And so to believe that he was actually the son of God would be hard to believe. Jesus was so very human. And so when, when he started uh, supposedly casting out demons and healing people and teaching with the authority that only scribes taught with, his family concluded he snapped. He's gone crazy. He's a madman. He's a lunatic. And so they go to seize him to take him back home to care for him and to stop the embarrassment for their family. That's what the family believed about Jesus. What about the religious leaders? What did the religious leaders believe about Jesus? Well, remember, Jesus was way up in Galilee and kind of the pinnacle of the religious leaders were located down in Judea in the city of Jerusalem. And they had started receiving reports about this, this rogue preacher, Jesus, who is, who is teaching with authority, who is casting out demons, who's healing the sick. And so they get together and they discuss, what, what do we make of this man, Jesus? Who do we say that this Jesus is. And so you'll see in this passage, it says they come down from Jerusalem, not because they're going south, but Jerusalem was up on a hill and you always went up to Jerusalem. So they come down from Jerusalem to Galilee and they speak into who they think Jesus's identity is. And the conclusion that they come to is that Jesus is not a lunatic, but that he is a lying devil. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Beelzebub was kind of an ancient Canaanite god, uh, can also be known as Lord of the Flies, uh, Lord of Filth or of Dung. Um, what else is interesting about this name Beelzebub is that it can actually mean master of the house, which comes up uh, in a very important way in the passage that, that we're going to get to in a little bit, but master of the house. And so they are concluding that the reason why Jesus can cast out demons is because he is the prince of demons. He can bully the other demons around. He can tell them where to go and what to do. Now, here's the interesting thing about these two theories, about Jesus being a lunatic and, and Jesus being a, 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 a lying uh, demon, okay? The two interesting things about these accusations from these two groups of people is that neither one of them claims the miracles didn't happen. Neither one of them says Jesus didn't heal people. Jesus didn't cast demons out. Uh, and the reason why they couldn't claim that is because the evidence was literally walking all around Jesus. All these people who had been healed, all these people where demons had been cast out, no one was claiming that Jesus didn't do these miracles. They knew Jesus did these miracles. And so they had to come to a conclusion on who they believed Jesus to be. His family thought he was a lunatic the religious leaders thought he was a lying demon. And so that's, that's the conclusions they came to. But then there were others there in the crowd. And this isn't recorded in, in Mark's gospel, but in a parallel account in Matthew's gospel, it's the same event. Um, he just includes other details. What others say about Jesus is that Jesus is the Lord. Um, Again, we see this in, in the Gospel of Matthew, but when they come down the mountain, it says this in Matthew 12, 22, and I think we have it up here on the screen for you. It says, then a demon-possessed man, uh, sorry, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And this is when the crowds were, were coming in upon him. And, and he healed them so that the man spoke and saw. 
And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Uh, David was the king of Israel that lived about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Uh, David was the most popular king. He was, uh, he was the most important king. Uh, it was promised to David that from his line would come the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord incarnate. And so people are saying, could this be the son of David? Could this be that the Lord has come to rescue us? And so while some believe that Jesus was a lunatic, and others thought he was a lying demon. There were others who believed him to be Lord. C.S. Lewis uh, was a professor at Oxford University. Uh, he was an atheist throughout his teens and into his 20s. Uh, around 30, if I read it correctly, he became an agnostic, which means he said God exists, but we really don't know who this God is. But then later in his life, he became a Christian. And about the identity of Jesus and who Jesus is, Lewis says this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And so when we look at the life of Jesus and the claims of Jesus, there's really only three logical conclusions that we can come to. That Jesus was a lunatic who thought he was the son of God, but really wasn't. Or that Jesus was a lying devil who wanted to deceive the world or thirdly, that Jesus is Lord. But we cannot say he was just simply a good moral teacher. That's not even open for discussion. And so the question is, who do you say Jesus is? Do you say with his family that he is a lunatic? With the religious leaders that he is a lying devil? Or do you ask as the crowds did, could this be the son of David, the Lord incarnate? That's who people in Jesus' day said Jesus was. Now, who did Jesus say that Jesus is? Well, first he starts by telling us who he is not. And first he's responding to the claim that he's demonic and he's saying, I'm not demonic, right? Exactly what maybe a demon might say, but, but Jesus says, I'm not demonic. But then he illustrates that through common sense and through parables. Look at verse 23 with me. It says, and Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Again, Jesus is responding to this uh, accusation that he is Beelzebub, a, a lying devil who uses the power of Satan to drive out demons. And, and so Jesus uses these two parables to give them a logical reason why this can't be true. 
The first is a military illustration, one of a kingdom. You know, if a military is going to attack another country, one of their strategies is not for one detachment of soldiers to attack another detachment of soldiers in the same military. Uh, to my knowledge, never has that been one of the plans for defeating a foreign army because everybody knows that's insane that that would not work. You don't fight against your own people. That leads to losing, to destruction. You always fight against the enemy. And then the second illustration he uses here is of a divided household. This might hit a little closer to home for you, pun completely intended, but, but you know if a household is divided, it falls, right? Bad things happen. I've said this before, but, but, but when people come up here, when they move up here, I just say, hey, so you know, lake houses break families apart because they become divided on how they view that lake house, and then there's tension between each other. In Missouri, we don't have lake houses that much, but, but I know in my own extended family, I had two uncles that were in business together. And one of the uncles decided to start a side business, uh, which from my understanding was competition to the main business. Well, you can imagine the other brother didn't like this too much, and so he shut him out of the office, and they have not talked in the last 30 years. Or if they have, it's been very minimally. It's so bad that they won't both come to the family reunion. It's so bad that they wouldn't both come to their mother's funeral, which both of them adored their mother. That's how bad this rift was. And so a family divided against itself will fall also. And so Jesus is using these two illustrations of a military and of a family saying, listen, I can't go around assaying, casting out demons because that goes against my purposes, which is to extend my kingdom on this earth. And so in verse 26, Jesus says, and as Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. You see, here's the thing. Satan is crafty. Satan is deceptive. Satan is evil. But Satan is not dumb. He's not dumb. He's way smarter than you, and he's way smarter than me. And he would not attack his own kingdom. And so Jesus uses logic to say, listen, I cannot be demonic because a demon would not attack other demons. But then who does Jesus claim to be? Jesus says, I'm not a demon. But who does Jesus then claim to be? Verse 27 says, but no one can enter a strong man's house. Remember Beelzebub, uh, the, the name that they accuse Jesus of means master of the house, prince of demons. And so the strong man in this illustration that we're about to read is Satan. He's the strong man. And the house uh, that's being talked about here is the world that we live in. Matter of fact, there are places where Jesus calls Satan the ruler of the world. The world is Satan's sandbox. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news. You'll find out very quickly. The world is Satan's sandbox. He is full of deception in this world, leading people into destructive things, including deceiving us many times as well. And so this is the this is Satan's sandbox. This is Satan's home, his, his, his world. Jesus, again, verse 27 says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds up the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. This illustration may seem strange to us. But Jesus is saying that his identity is as a plunderer as a robber, as a seizer of goods. And for us, this is wonderful news. 
You see, Jesus left his home in heaven to come into this world, which is Satan's house. And Jesus, by casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, is binding up this strong man, Satan. And Jesus does this to plunder his goods. And do you know what the goods of Satan are that Jesus is seeking to plunder? It isn't a new TV. It isn't cash in the bank. It isn't It isn't a jewel. He has come to plunder you. He has come to plunder me and to draw us back to God to whom we rightfully belong in the first place. I know I've shared this before a couple Christmases ago, but I think the the movie that most clearly communicates the Christmas message is not It's a Wonderful Life. It's not Miracle on 34th Street. It's not Home Alone. Those are all great Christmas movies. But I think the movie that most communicates the message of Christmas is the movie Taken. Maybe you've seen this movie before. Maybe you haven't. But it's a story of, of, a, of a CIA agent who retires to spend more time with his daughter as she grows up. She's a 16-year-old teenager. And when she turns 16, she wants to go over to Paris And her mother is all for this. He is against it because he knows the dangers that await in Paris. But he capitulates and he agrees because he doesn't want to lose his daughter. And so as he takes her to the airport, he's telling her all of these things of, hey, be careful you don't do this, don't do that, make sure you call me. Uh, It's very dangerous. Be careful when you're over there. Well, she flies over and she completely disregards her father's uh, instruction. And and she rebels against her dad and she does silly, foolish, and, and sinful things. And so as a result of that, uh, some men break into the house that she and her friend are staying in. And she can see across the courtyard uh, in the window of the living room, these men break in and seizing her friend and, and taking her friend and kidnapping her friend. And so she calls her dad in a panic. And she says, dad, what should I do? Now in that moment, her dad could have said, well, you know what? You mess this up. You deal with it. Take care of it yourself. I told you, now you figure it out. He could have said that, but that's not what he said. You may remember she goes under the bed, they, they pull her out to kidnap her, and then the guy picks up the phone, and he, he utters those, those lines, this dad, Brian Mills, utters this line. He says, if you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you, I will not pursue you, but if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. And so Brian makes this promise to his evil enemies for the sake of his beloved daughter. Through the rest of the movie, compelled by love, this father, Brian, goes into this foreign world. He incarnates himself into this this really ugly, disgusting world of human trafficking. And he goes there to rescue his daughter. He binds up the strongmen. He overcomes them. He defeats them to plunder his daughter back to himself. That is a father's love. That is the Christmas story. That is the story of the Bible. And that is the story that Jesus is telling us here. That Jesus has come into the house of Satan. He's come into the world for this purpose, to plunder you to himself. You know, Jesus holds a lot of titles in the Bible. King of kings, Lord of lords, Christ, Messiah, Lamb of God, Emmanuel, But friends, this might be one of the sweetest names of Jesus. Jesus is our plunderer. Why have we not written a song about that yet? That is such a beautiful and wonderful and amazing thing that Christ has come into the the house of Satan and bound up the strong man 
to plunder us to himself. Jesus is the relentless love of God who does not let us suffer the consequences of a rebellion, but who stops at nothing to plunder us and bring us back to himself. So, so who did people say Jesus was? Well, some said he was a lunatic. Some said he was a lying devil. Others said he was Lord. Who did Jesus say he is? He said, I'm a plunderer. I've come to rob you back to God. The final question is, who do you say Jesus is? First, with your words. Who do you say Jesus is with your words? Look at verse 28 with me. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now don't, uh, don't miss the most glorious part of this statement uh, that Jesus says, any sin is forgivable, even blasphemy against God. So no matter how sinful you have been, how, no matter how sinful you are, it is forgivable. That is a glorious statement that Jesus says here. But then he goes on and he says, but there is one unforgivable sin, an eternal sin, he calls it. And he says it is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this word blasphemy mean? Well, you could actually translate the Greek word to mean vilification, to vilify someone, uh, evil speaking of someone. Webster Dictionary actually gives a pretty good definition. It says it is the act of claiming the attributes of God as Jesus did. But then it also says, or the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. And that's what Jesus is accusing these religious leaders of in this day, that they are insulting God, insulting the Holy Spirit by attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. We see this uh, up earlier in verse 22 uh, when they accuse Jesus of being Beelzebub, but even more explicitly here, verse 29 through 30, when it says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal Sin, And then it says in verse 30, for they were saying, he, being Jesus, has an unclean spirit. And the gospel of Mark, unclean spirit always means demonic spirit, satanic spirit. And so they are saying Jesus has a satanic spirit. And so you might be here stressing out saying, oh no, did I commit the unforgivable sin? I sure hope I didn't commit the unforgivable sin because I want to be with Jesus in heaven forever. Well, if you're here and you're asking yourself that question, then it is evidence that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. The ESV Study Bible does a great job of, of defining the unforgivable sin, and it says this. Let me find it here really quick. Um, it says, this is a sin committed by unbelievers, by unbelievers who deliberately and unchangeably, that's so important, who deliberately and unchangeably reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit and calling them to salvation. And so if you have a sensitivity or a concern of, of committing the unforgivable sin, then it's an indication that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Because those who commit the unforgivable sin care not that they're committing the unforgivable sin. They are perfectly happy to accuse the Holy Spirit as doing the works of Satan. They're simply okay accusing Jesus of being Satan. 
What's so interesting here is that Jesus' identity and the Holy Spirit are so bound up together. They're, they're inseparable, really, because it says in verse 34, they were saying that he, being Jesus, has an unclean spirit. And so it's also tied to how we understand the identity of Jesus. And so as we look at this passage, we really have, again, three options on who we might say Jesus is. That Jesus is a lunatic filled with the spirit of craziness, that Jesus is a demon filled with the spirit of Satan, or that Jesus is the Lord filled with the Holy Spirit. And so let me ask you, what would you say of those three? Option A, a lunatic filled with the spirit of craziness. Option B, a demon filled with the spirit of Satan. Or option C, the Lord filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm guessing many of you here would choose option C. If you choose option A or B, I'm still glad that you're here. But many of you would choose option C, that Jesus is the Lord filled with the Holy Spirit. But does it alarm you that all of the demons would choose option C as well? All of the demons would say that Jesus is Lord. As a matter of fact, as you look through the Gospel of Mark, the demons are like the only ones who actually know the identity of Jesus. They always say, you are the Holy One of God. And he says, be quiet. And he casts them out. You see, it is not only important to identify who Jesus is with our words, but we also must identify who Jesus is with our lives. Look at verse 31 with me. It says, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. Remember, they think he's crazy. They want to bring him back home. Verse 32. Uh, sorry, verse 33. Um, no, let's go back to verse 32. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, they would probably exclaim, Well, Mary's your mother, right? And, and you have brothers named James, Judas, Joseph, and Simon. But Jesus continues in verse 34, and he says, And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We know what the will of God is because it is found in the word of God, which is the Bible. And so those who are saved, those who are born again, are not those who simply pay lip service and say Jesus is Lord and Savior, but it is those whose lives are being transformed by this reality in their hearts. To be clear, Jesus is not saying that obedience to the will of God is how we become a brother or sister to Jesus, but rather obedience to the will of God proves that we are a brother or sister to Jesus. Furthermore, our obedience to God is not going to be perfect, but it is to be progressive. If we follow Jesus, then we should be growing in obedience to Jesus. If we believe Jesus is Lord, not only with our lips, but in our hearts, it should transform our lives. Let me give you an example of this. I had some friends uh, who adopted a girl from overseas uh, several years ago, um, man, probably 20 years, eh, 15 years ago, they adopted a girl from overseas. And uh, they, they, the, the girl there wasn't asking for them. Uh, this family decided to, to simply place their love upon this girl who was in an orphanage overseas. And so they had to spend a lot of money, do a lot of paperwork, go through a lot of trouble to go and get her. But they were happy to do it because they had decided to place their love 
upon her. Well, when they brought her home, uh, she was probably around 10 or so. Um, she didn't know what it meant to be a part of a family. And so, and so she started stealing food out of the cabinets. Uh, at dinner time, she would just fill her plate with food as fast as possible because everything she was used to was being a part of an orphanage where it was survival of the fittest and, and people would get food wherever they could get it. And so finally, the mom and dad had to sit down with her and say, listen, you are a part of our family and, and all of our food is, is your food. And so you don't need to steal it. You don't need to you know, get tons of it when we first start dinner because all of it belongs to you because you are our child. And so, so progressively, she started to grow into the identity as a child of these parents who loved Jesus and loved her. And, and so even today, she's secure in her family and her relationship with her mom and dad. She knew intellectually that this man and this woman were a mom and dad, but it wasn't until it sunk down into her heart that it transformed the way that she lived her life. We've been asking the question, who do you say Jesus is? But in this last verse, Jesus turns the table and Jesus tells us who we are. Who are you? Well, if you are one who trusts in Jesus, not only in your head, but also with your heart and it transforms your life, then it is evident that you are a brother and sister of Jesus and you have been adopted as a child of the God of the universe. Who you say Jesus is with your words is important, but who you see, say Jesus is with your life validates that it has sunk down into your heart because it is a difference between a demon with good theology and a true child of God that's been transformed by the love of Christ. Let me end with um, a silly illustration that is full of flaws, so please don't come up after the service and tell me all the flaws. I know it's, I know it's silly. How many of you here have heard of King Tut? Okay, all right. I'm just curious if kids have heard of King Tut. Kids, have you heard of King Tut? Okay, all right. Uh, King Tut came, became popular, I think it was in the 1920s because they basically found, maybe it was his pyramid, but wherever he was buried and there's all of these riches and all these magnificent things to look at. And so, so they discovered, okay, King Tut was a pharaoh that lived a, a long time ago, right? Like he was, he was an ancient pharaoh that really doesn't have much to do with us today, but, but this is beautiful, all the things that were discovered in his tomb. Well, what would happen if they actually found out that King Tut was not a pharaoh, but in fact, King Tut was just a famous rapper, okay? Uh, his name was actually Steve, wasn't a very cool name, so they called him King Tut, right? King Tut, the rapper, okay? What would happen if they discovered King Tut wasn't a pharaoh, but he was a rapper, and he had all of this treasure because he was just a famous rapper? I know you're picturing this in your head now, it's kind of silly, but, but I mean, it would be weird, it would be provocative, it would be interesting, but it would have no impact on your life at all. None. I mean, would it change anything you do day to day? It wouldn't change anything because King Tut's identity has nothing to do with your identity. But the identity of Jesus has everything to do with your identity. Because if Jesus is not the Son of God, if he is not the Christ, if he is not the Messiah, if he is a lunatic, if he is a, a lying demon, if he is one of those things, then us being here today is completely unnecessary. It is foolish for us to be here. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, then it must encapsulate our entire life. 
C.S. Lewis, who I quoted earlier, one more quote from him that I think is so helpful. Uh, Christianity is tied to the identity of Jesus, and so I think this quote is so helpful for us. He says this. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Friends, we live in a world where Jesus is moderately important to so many people. But this is completely inconsistent with who Jesus says he is. Who do you say Jesus is? He's either of no importance or of supreme importance. But he cannot be moderately important. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are our plunderer that you did not stay far off, but that you entered into the strong man's house, that you came in to bind him up and to rescue us to yourself. We are so thankful that we are no longer under the dominion of Satan, but that we are now a part of the family of God through faith in you. As we turn to the table, we are reminded that when you came, you not only risked your life, but you gave your life to bring us to be a part of your family. And so we receive this meal as a family meal of those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ, those who have been adopted into the family of God and receive it with great joy, knowing that you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.